Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here. Um, Today we are coming back uh, to our study on the book of Titus. Uh, Those words written from the Apostle Paul uh, to his co-laborer in the faith, giving vital instruction on establishing healthy and godly churches. Uh, At that time, uh, Titus' work focused on the Mediterranean island of Crete, uh, but these words are vital too uh, for every church, in every location, in every generation. So, uh, if you haven't already, please turn with me to Titus chapter 1, and as you do so, uh, let me just say thank you to uh, Nathan and to Ray, uh, who ably declared God's word uh, from this pulpit over the last uh, two weeks. Uh, last week, I had the privilege of uh, going and preaching at, at Timothy Yap's pulpit down at East Keylor. Uh, he's a fellow Fika pastor, and for anyone who's a visitor here today, uh, Fika is the, the association that our church is a part of, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches Australia. So it was encouraging to have a chat with Timothy afterwards uh, about the possibilities of our two churches uh, working together for gospel ministry, and and uh, so we're praying uh, carefully, uh, considering what that might look like in the future, and I'd appreciate your prayers uh, for that as well. Our focus uh, over the next three weeks uh, is on Titus chapter 1 and verses 10 to 16, uh, but let me just begin by reading from verse 1 so that we can see Paul's run of thought uh, that leads up to these verses. Uh, we've, we've studied uh, these earlier verses in depth over the last two months, but it's always good to see uh, how those things set the stage uh, for what Paul brings up next. So Titus chapter 1 and from verse 1 through to verse 16. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, 
not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So from verses 5 to 9, uh, Paul gives us an overview of the the character qualities and the skills needed uh, for those men who would lead the local congregation in the office of elder. And the necessity of this is now made crystal clear as Paul describes the false teachers and the tragic effect that they were having on the churches in Crete. And falsehood still abounds. And it's nothing new either, as these verses make clear. And the most dangerous thing about it is that this generally stems from within the church itself. In the first century, Paul declared to the Ephesian elders, in Acts chapter 20, we read in verses 29 to 30, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now this warning has shown itself to be true uh, throughout the centuries that have followed. Church history is filled uh, with those who have sought to draw people away from the truth. But thankfully it is also filled uh, with those who have stood firm to declare and articulate the truth with boldness. And it's from these battles that the the well-known creeds of the church were formed. Statements that sought to lay out the truths of scripture in a clear and precise manner. In the first five centuries of the church, challenges arose to the belief in the Trinity. Challenges arose to the belief that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. If we jump to the 16th century, uh, men bled and died for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Then in the 19th and 20th century, uh, challenges were directed at the Bible itself, uh, claiming that the Bible was not all that it claimed of itself. And in recent times, challenges have been levelled at the Bible's teaching on marriage and gender roles and gender itself. And all these challenges have generally come from within the bounds of the church. Every generation needs faithful leaders who will stand up for the truth of the gospel and indeed the whole counsel of God. Because every generation will experience the difficulties of false teachers that Titus and those he appointed as elders had to deal with in the first century. Godly elders are a necessity in the life of the local congregation. Just think of it this way. Some people uh, can sit at their kitchen table not knowing that a strange smell is wafting out of their fridge. Others may have the ability to sense that smell, uh, but they're unable to detect the exact source of the problem. But then there are those who acknowledge a smell, they walk straight to the fridge, open the door, point and say, that's it, right there, 
pick up the odorous and offending item and then throw it in the bin. Now that might be a bit simplistic because really there's not many people who can't walk to the fridge and recognise where a funky smell is coming from. But when it comes to false teaching, there are some who do not know that false teaching is being taught. There are some who who can't quite put their finger on exactly what the problem is. They sense there's something wrong, they just don't know exactly what it is. And then there are those who can identify it. And churches need leaders who can do just that. But not just that, more than that. More than simply being able to recognise the issue, they must have the courage to deal with it too. For the glory of God and for the good of his people. Now over the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be addressing uh, verses 10 to 16 of Titus chapter 1 uh, under the heading of the elders' task. And this morning we're going to deal with verses 10 to 11 where we'll see that part of the elders' task is to confront the deceivers. But this teaching is not applicable only for the elders. This is not uh, an opportunity for the entire church bar three elders uh, to take a snooze. This teaching helps the church understand what the elders are to do. And, and to know that it's, it's not an invention of our own making, of our own construction. Furthermore, as we, we look at the nature of false teachers in Crete, we'll see that the beliefs and the behaviours uh, that were exhibited by these teachers, they're inherent in all false teachers, characteristic of all false teachers throughout generations. And so it will provide us with a better comprehension of what to be on guard against. Ultimately, as, as Paul uh, set forth in the opening verse of this letter, truth leads to godliness. And as Jesus, uh, when speaking about false prophets, he also reiterated the same thing. He said in Matthew 7, you will recognise them by their fruit. So Paul lays out what these false teachers are like and and how Titus and the elderships are meant to handle these deceivers. And he highlights firstly the abundance of deceivers. How many are there? Verse 10. For there are many. Now straight away we see the necessity and the importance of having biblically qualified elders leading the church uh, because there are many deceivers who will come up within the church seeking to destroy it. Now obviously Paul is speaking directly into the situation here in Crete uh, but the warning is just as pertinent for every church throughout the ages. To think that false teachers are few and far between is to be ignorant of the Bible's teaching and the history of the church. Now I speak as someone who grew up in such ignorance and a major reason for that and and I think uh, for many who do not think false teaching is, is possible or prevalent is that we grow up in churches which do not have a pulpit out of which flows strong expository preaching. Preaching that takes people deep into the word of God Preaching that seeks to find itself in line with faithful preaching of the past. 
And what a blessing it is uh, for me to be called by God to pastor a church uh, which has a legacy of strong expository preaching. What a blessing it is uh, for those of you who have been able to be ministered to in this way throughout uh, the many years of this church. Don't ever take that for granted. That is a truly precious gift from God. Now, the fact that there were many false teachers in the region of Crete means that we should not think that false teaching is limited to uh, a certain doctrinal truth or, or a call to act in a certain way. In a helpful article, a, a reformed blogger, uh, Tim Challies, uh, some of you may have come across his name before, Tim Challies, he uh, lists seven types of false teachers uh, that the Bible warns us to be on our guard against. Uh, cautions that are just as relevant today as they were uh, when they were first delivered. And so I'll just uh, give you some of these headings. If you're interested in that article, I can give you uh, the information about it after the service. But he, he goes through these Bible verses and he shows how, how this is effective in the church today. And so the Bible warns of the heretic, the one who blatantly teaches against biblical truth. And then there is the, the charlatan who's in it for his own personal gain. There's the prophet who goes beyond what is written in scripture claiming to receive direct revelation from God. I received an email just this week in which a leader of a church organisation claimed that God was directly speaking through him with a vision for the church. It's hard to argue uh, with a man who has that kind of authority, isn't it? So there's the prophet, there's the abuser who takes advantage of other people to satisfy his own lust. There's the divider who, who seeks to disrupt and to destroy a church. There's the tickler who gives messages that please men, but do not honour God. And there's the speculator, who is obsessed with novelty and originality. Now this is not cause for us to fear, for we know that God is sovereign. But it is to caution us to be wise and discerning, and to be submitting to the word of God. To drive us back to the word so that we will know the truth from error. But as Paul elaborates, while there are many false teachers, there is a, a similar attitude uh, that characterizes them. Here is a clear way of knowing whether someone speaks truth or falsehood. And so Paul speaks of the attitude of deceivers. What are they like? Well, he says they are insubordinate. These are people who will not be restrained by the convicting word of God. They won't submit themselves to the Bible as the ultimate authority. Uh, they will not correct their teaching if it is found to be in contradiction to the supreme and sufficient revelation of Scripture. And because of this, Paul says, they are empty talkers. And since their words do not stem from biblical authority, they have no value. There's no meaning in these words. There's no substance to them. Their teaching does not produce godliness in themselves or in others. And as a result, Paul aptly labels them 
deceivers. They lead people away from truth and into falsehood. They're like the gingerbread house that fooled Hansel and Gretel. Or think of Jesus' description of the Pharisees as being whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but housing death and decay on the inside. Now, of the many false teachers that abounded in Crete, there is one group that stood out. Paul says, especially those of the circumcision party. And this is a reference to uh, the Jews who had made a profession of faith in Christ. There was a a significant Jewish presence on Crete. Uh, In Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, we're told that on the day of Pentecost, uh, Jews from Crete were present at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, hearing the disciples preach in their own language. This was around 30 years earlier to when Paul was writing to Titus. Now, it was a common problem in the beginnings of the church as men and women professed faith in Christ, but they still held on to the traditions of the past uh, and tried to then enforce those on other people. And so instead of the gospel being faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone, it became for some faith plus any number of things. Now, Paul's not speaking about those Christians who who are in the process of growing to understand the freedom that they have in Christ. He was speaking of this in Romans 14 and 15, uh, where he uh, told of the the weaker brothers and sisters who had not yet uh, understood that they could let go of these other things. Now, here he is speaking about those who have truly not understood the gospel at all. And they're seeking to lead others astray as well. And so this leads him to emphasise another characteristic of the the false teachers. We see the action of these deceivers. We ask, well, what are they doing? Well, they are upsetting whole families by teaching what they ought not to teach. The actions of the false teachers here, anywhere, they're never edifying. They're never uplifting. They're never aimed at building and strengthening disciples. The effect and the aftermath is devastating. It's like watching news footage of a town ravaged by a natural disaster. But this is not buildings that we're talking about here. It is families. And it doesn't take much either. In Galatians 5 verse 9, Paul reminds us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus warned the disciples to be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and by which he meant their teaching, and he spoke of this in Matthew chapter 16. Leaven, or yeast, is that critical element that helps the dough grow and rise. And it only takes a little bit to permeate through the whole mixture, to affect every bit of the dough. And so imagine how much of an effect a little bad teaching can have in the life of the church. Now there's not a huge amount of detail uh, given regarding what it is that the false teachers were actually teaching. Uh, That they ought not to teach it shows that it was contrary to the gospel. In one sense, this prepares us to be on guard against anything that is contrary to the gospel. 
But there are some clues here as to what was causing issues in Crete. Uh, The connection with the circumcision party is, is drawn out further in verse 14, where Paul speaks about Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then again in verse 15, where Paul speaks about purity. Now we'll have opportunity to delve uh, further into these uh, verses in the coming weeks, but for now let me just summarise simply. It seems that in the reference uh, to Jewish myths, these false teachers were creating stories around minor Old Testament characters. And by doing so, they were able to, to lord themselves, prop themselves up as the ones who knew the secret truths of the Bible. And if only they knew the secret truths of the Bible, then people had to listen to them if they wanted to understand what was really true. Now, this is not the same as a a godly teacher speaking about the importance of properly interpreting the text of the Bible. No, these people were not interpreting the Scriptures. They were finding things in the Scriptures that were simply not there. And they were not there in the scriptures because the false teachers were making it up. And so that was one aspect. The other aspect is about the commands of the people. This is not the commands of God, but the commands of the people. In Mark 7, Jesus spoke of the Pharisees as holding on to the traditions of men. Again, these were not the teachings uh, from the scripture, but the interpretations of the scripture that had moved beyond what the scripture actually said. And the reason the false teachers were doing so is the same reason anyone moves beyond what the scriptures say. It's a result of sin. You see, sinful desires do not want to be subject to the words of scripture Our sinful desires uh, does not want to acknowledge our inability to save ourselves, acknowledge the holiness of God, and acknowledge God's just judgment upon sin. We don't want a bar of that. Our sinful desire does not want to follow God's direction for salvation, to acknowledge our sin, to call on God's mercy, and to trust in Christ alone. And so, by the commandments of men... The false teachers were telling people that they needed to follow purity rituals in order to be made right with God. The false teachers were telling people that the things that God had created good were to be avoided. Things like food or marriage. The false teachers were reversing the things that God had set in place. Prophet Isaiah warned about this when he declared in chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Only when we submit to the truth of God, the truth of Scripture, will we be led to proper godliness. Now, it's not surprising that these false teachers were causing so much havoc when Paul makes clear their ambition. What is their purpose? What is the ambition of these deceivers? They are teaching for shameful gain. A false teacher has no concern whatsoever for the people that he is ministering to, 
but has all his efforts directed towards the betterment of himself. Now, is there anything wrong with a a pastor uh, being financially supported by those he ministers to? Well, no. In fact, Paul addresses this issue in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 18. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. So God has called certain men into positions of leadership in the church where their priority is the preparation and presentation of the word of God. This takes time. Time that could not be given if if the pastor had to spend his time working in another job at, at the exact same time. But all his efforts are for the benefit of the people he serves and ministers to as Christ's under shepherd. I heard a beautiful description of the pastor's job as one who goes out each day to mine for gold and then returns to share the treasures that he has found with his people. Now, while Paul, for the sake of the gospel, at times chose not to partake of his own rights as an apostle, nevertheless, he was clear on the importance of supporting those who labour in teaching and preaching the word. But this is not the focus of his words about the false teachers here in Titus 1 verse 11. They're not receiving financial support in order to serve the people. No, they're simply in it for the money. And they will do whatever it takes to line their own pockets This is a stark contrast to what Paul has set up as the character qualities of an elder. In Titus 1 verse 7, he says that an elder must not be greedy for gain. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 3, he says an elder must not be a lover of money. The Apostle Peter also addresses the issue in his instruction to elders. His words in 1 Peter chapter 5 speak volumes to what should be the motivation of a true teacher of God's word. So just turn with me uh, for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 5 so you can see these words and soak them in. Peter 5 and verses 1 to 3, the apostle says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. There it is right there. But eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now the ambitions and motivations of false teachers are just far too limited by what Peter states here. May as well just put a black line through that right now and move on. So contrast their desire for shameful gain with the true motivation that guides godly teachers. When Paul speaks in Ephesians 4, 
about the leadership gifts that Christ has given to the church, he is very clear as to what they have been given for. So turn back to Ephesians 4 and let's have a look at that. In Ephesians 4, Paul was speaking about the unity of the church and then he speaks about the diversity of the church, the different gifts that Christ has given. We're all unified, but some have different gifts. All have different gifts and are called to serve in that way. And so in verse 11, Paul speaks of Christ's gifts to the church. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And then from verse 12, we see the reason why they have been given. To equip the saints for work of ministry, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But let's not stop here. From verse 14, we see the result of that. Verse 14, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ's under-shepherds are tasked with equipping the church through the word of God, building the church in the power of the Spirit through his word to unity in Christ. This is a far cry from the false teacher's purpose of building up their own bank account. Now, a more succinct statement about the ambition of a godly leader is found in Colossians 1.28, where Paul says, Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You might be familiar with that verse. It just happens to be the overarching goal of the Mafra Community Church, to present Christ to all and all mature in Christ. So to this point in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, Paul has outlined the character of the false teachers and the chaos that they have been causing. And I hope from what we've covered, you've gained a greater appreciation for this danger and a greater understanding of what to be on guard against. But the question remains, what are Titus and through Titus the elders What are they to do about these deceivers? Well, Paul states this very clearly. He says they must be silenced. And this is our last point today. Paul speaks of the abolition of deceivers. What is the consequence of their work? They must be silenced. They must be abolished. Their words must be ended. They must not be allowed to speak falsehood any longer. And the brevity of Paul's statement, its its shortness, its lack of any ambiguity, shows that there is to be no mucking around when dealing with matters like this. The welfare of the church of Christ depends upon it. 
Now this of course does not mean that the eldership can go about silencing these deceivers in any manner they see fit. The end does not justify the means. We've already seen in previous weeks that elders are to act with integrity, that their lives are to be above reproach. And this propriety, this respectability, extends to handling false teachers as well. In Titus chapter 3, Paul gives insight into the means of silencing opponents. He says in verses 10 to 11, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so it's clear from this that there is to be opportunity given for repentance. But if you turn with me to to, uh, to 2 Timothy, chapter 2, we see more details outlined for us. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26, Paul says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so it is necessary to be forthright and clear when dealing with those who are leading others astray from the gospel. But the elders are to retain their integrity by sticking to the issues, not engaging opponents in a quarrelsome manner, speaking the truth with a desire that even the false teachers might be brought to repentance by the grace of God. Now this is a difficult task, because even if all care has been taken in the means to rebuke false teaching appropriately, it's highly unlikely that the person being silenced is going to bow out all that quietly. And here certainly is one of the reasons why Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, the work that elders have been divinely tasked with is going to place them in all sorts of situations where people may respond negatively to them. Especially with the work of silencing false teachers, there will be at times a lot of flack headed the elders' way. And it is necessary that some abiding guidelines are in place within the church to ensure that innocent elders, those diligently doing their jobs, are enabled to continue to do what God has set in place for them to do. The fact that Paul is so straightforward in his command to silence false teachers helps us recognise the threat that unsound doctrine has in the life of God's people. Discernment, having the wisdom and the knowledge to see false teaching for what it is, this is a crucial matter for Christians, all Christians. Now we often hear that it is judgmental to make statements about what people believe. As long as they claim to know Jesus, then we should accept them as brothers and sisters in the faith. 
Now, to be sure, Jesus gave warning in Matthew 7 to avoid hypocritical judgment. But then later in that same chapter, he made a statement which speaks against any claim that we should avoid judgment altogether. In verses 15 to 20, he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Truth will lead to godliness. But if that is not the case, it's the elders' task to confront the deceivers. So may God grant his leaders wisdom and courage in these matters. And may God grant his church understanding of its importance. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word of scripture. We thank you that it is truth because it stems from your nature and your character and you are the God who does not lie. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have seen today to to recognize the importance of truth and to recognize the issue of falsehood that Uh, that will continuously try and undermine your church. Father, we thank you for Paul's clear and concise warning and for details of what is meant to happen there. Father, we thank you for the teaching of of, uh, that he sets up about honourable leadership. Father, we pray as a church that you would help us to be unified in the spirit, through the bond of peace and You would help us, each one of us, by your spirit to be directed to your word. That your spirit may illuminate our hearts and minds, that we may see the truth and that we may be able to sense error very clearly. Father, we pray for this church. We pray for its purity. We pray for the godliness, that godliness will continue to grow in its members. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. We pray that you would be glorified through us as your people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.